up. So he was a rabbi reject. And here you have Jesus walking up to him. After Matthew had given up on that way of life and he had just gone to be a tax collector, Jesus walks up to him and says, follow me and be my disciple. You might think that you were washed out, but you are welcome to follow me, imitate me in this life. And so we see Matthew do something that sounds dramatic to us, but this is just logical in this world. Matthew, he got up and he followed Jesus immediately. We see what happens next in this relationship between Matthew, this tax collector, and Jesus in the next verse. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and disreputable sinners. So Matthew brought his crew to come hang out with Jesus' crew, and it was like this awkward first date, this awkward mingling around Matthew's table here. And then we see the very next thing that happens uh, is that the Pharisees get upset about this. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, they asked Jesus' crew, said, why does your teacher eat? with such scum. Now, Pharisees, they were the religious teachers. They were the ones keeping the letter of the law in the ancient world. They were the experts of religion, if you will, right? And they asked, like, how in the world can your rabbi hang out with such a scum, with these terrible, terrible sinners, these tax collectors? How could they do it? Now, what the Pharisees are picking up on is this ancient practice called table fellowship. And this was the letter of the law. This is the way that society was ordered in the ancient Near East in the first century is there were these laws and these rules around table fellowship. And this is what table fellowship said. Table fellowship said that who you hang out with, who you eat dinner with, who you invite under your roof and hang out with and lounge around with, their righteousness before God becomes your righteousness before God. Their sin becomes your sin, and it's transferred to you. Their brokenness becomes your brokenness. Table Fellowship says that who you hang out with, their mess, it gets on you. So what Jesus was doing here was scandalous. He's turning over the tables, shifting the way that people think about table fellowship in this way because he's hanging out with the scum of the earth. So we see this next. What happens next? Jesus, he responds to the Pharisees whispering in the corner of the room. When Jesus heard this, he said this. And I love this because, you see, Jesus got some sarcasm. I mean, he's not like hippy-dippy, it's all good all the time, peace, love, and understanding. Jesus can snap back. And who you see him snap back at in the New Testament were always the religious folk who thought they had it all together, which is a warning to us probably. But Jesus snaps back and he says this, healthy people don't need a doctor Sick people do. This is when Jesus drops the mic a little bit and just lets the dust settle, right? And then he adds this to get a little, a little snippy, a little snarky, what he says next. He added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. Now, mind you, these Pharisees, they're teachers of the scripture. They should know it all, have it all memorized. But he quotes Hosea 6.6 6 here and says, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. I want the way that you treat people around you horizontally, it validates the way that you treat God and what you think and believe about God. And he quotes their own scripture back at them. And then just to put the, the period or the exclamation mark on the end of this passage, Jesus says this, for I have come, here's his mission statement, for I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, those who think that their stuff doesn't stink, they've got it all together. But I've come to and called those who know they are sinners, who know that there's a gap between them and where they want to be and where God calls them to be. This is why I have come. 
Now, this is a subversive, radical passage. This is a radical thing that happened because I think Jesus is inviting us to think differently about the table and who we hang out with and how we spend our social time. I think he's inviting us to do this, to understand this, that Jesus invites the wrong people to his table. You know, there's the people that you should be hanging out with, that they're expected of you to hang out with. But Jesus, oh, he turns that upside down. Jesus invites the wrong people to his table. You guys know what the wrong people are in our context today, right? The ones that have that reputation, the ones who have gotten trouble, the ones who have broken the rules and gotten caught, or maybe they break the rules and you know one day they're going to get caught. People that might make us look bad or we might feel like we're guilty by association of hanging out with. When Jesus thinks about the table and the way he lived his life, he invited all the wrong people to his table. And Jesus, thank God, was not afraid of being guilty by association to the people he hung out with then. But let's take it to today. Thank God he's not afraid of being guilty by association with me with you and all of our brokenness and all of our hypocrisy and all of the times that we go in different directions, even though we know it's the wrong way to go. Jesus isn't afraid of a guilt by association. And that is a beautiful thing. Jesus invites all the wrong people to his table. Next way I want us to think about the table, take us to John chapter 18. I'll just paraphrase a little bit here. This was the night that Jesus was betrayed. And they were, him and his disciples were hanging out in the garden praying. Some were falling asleep. The Roman soldiers come up to arrest Jesus for blasphemy, for saying that he was God and that he could forgive sin. So they arrest Jesus. And then you see Jesus' closest friends that he'd done life with for three years disperse and scatter because they were so afraid of what was going to happen. And Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples, uh, we see Peter, actually, he ran away. And uh, later that evening, after Jesus had been arrested, Peter is just trying to go back to his old way of life. He's actually standing around a fire with other people. And people are just talking about, you know, the gossip of the day. Did you hear about Jesus of Nazareth? He got arrested, and he's going to be tried for blasphemy. And Peter's standing around, probably looking at the ground, just warming his hands around a fire. And then somebody looks up at Peter and says, hey, aren't you one of those guys that hung out with Jesus? And he goes, oh, no, that's not me. He denies even knowing Jesus, who he was giving his life for just a few hours earlier. He denies Jesus once, not twice, but three times, even knowing who Jesus was around this fire warming his hands. And then Peter, he gets out of town. Peter wants to go back to his old way of life, and Peter, by trade, was a fisherman, <laughs> And so he goes back to his old way of life, thinking that the whole Jesus story was over with because he was going to be crucified that next day. And Peter's like, I guess I was following the wrong Messiah. I guess it was just a pipe dream. And so he goes back to his old way of life, and he's fishing early, early one morning, what many of us would call the middle of the night. And they're having one of those nights when they're not catching anything at all. They're not catching anything at all. And you can just imagine, I mean, this is just a couple days after Peter had a whole different vision for his life. And Peter's just sort of sad. He's upset. He's probably upset with himself. He's got those shattered dreams of being a part of this movement that Jesus was leading. And it was all over with. And they're not catching anything. And then we see this in John chapter 21, just three chapters later after Peter's denial. We see this happen. Then the disciple Jesus loved, this was John the disciple, was also in the boat with Peter. And he said this, Peter, it's the Lord. It's Jesus. 
You see, there was somebody on the shore of the, of the Sea of Galilee who was shouting to Peter and John in the boat saying, hey, cast your nets on the right side of the boat. And they couldn't exactly tell who it was. And John says to Peter, it's the Lord. It's not just some random guy yelling at us. It's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was Jesus, he jumped into the water and headed to the shore. Like this sounds like a moment from a slapstick comedy or something like that. You, you see somebody, you hear somebody's voice that you haven't seen for a long time, and you have all this hope rush into you. He just jumps out of the boat, and he just heads to the shore. And you think Peter, in that moment of that, you know, that little trip where he was swimming to the shore, I mean, I, I'm sure he had like at first he's like, oh, it's Jesus. This is the greatest thing ever. But about halfway through that swim, just imagine thinking, oh, the last time I saw him, I had denied even knowing him. Oh, goodness, what is, what is Jesus going to say? Because I, like, abandoned the whole thing. I left him there to be crucified. And I can imagine he had excitement, he had guilt, he had shame all wrapped up into his being as he was taking that short swim to the shore to see Jesus. But what's so beautiful is what Peter finds when he makes it to the shore. The scriptures say next, next this. When they got there to the shore, they found breakfast waiting for them. And this is a breakfast of champions, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. <laughs> and then in this passage, we see here, this is what Jesus says. The first words that Jesus says to Peter after he denied even knowing who Jesus was, Jesus says this, now come and have some breakfast. Come sit at my table here on the beach and have some breakfast. Now, this is what I want us to pick up. This, is, this blew my mind. It left me in tears this week. The last time that G Peter saw Jesus, Peter was warming his hands over a fire, denying even knowing who Jesus was. What do we see on the beach? We see a different charcoal fire. We see a different fire, and you see Jesus with arms wide open, <laughs> making a table for Peter, <laughs> saying, come and have some breakfast with me. I think this is, what God, this is what God's impressed on my heart. This is what I want you to understand about Jesus and his table. Jesus invites the broken to his table. Those who might have walked away from him, those who might have gone down their own path, those who abandoned the way of God, and maybe if you knew it as a child or you grew up in church and then you walked away from it, uh, Jesus doesn't want to give you a lecture. Jesus doesn't meet you at the shore and wag his finger at you. No, what does Jesus give us? He gives you a meal. <laughs> he says, come and sit at my table. If you're broken, you feel like you're not good enough, that your decision from your past is the defining facet of your life, Jesus says, no, I break all that down. Come and be with me. Come to the table and have a meal with me. Jesus, again, is reminding us, I'm setting the table for the broken. <laughs> I'm setting this table for the broken, not those who have it all together, but those who come back and realize that they need a fresh start, that they need this forgiveness that only Jesus can offer. Let me just lean into this just a little bit more if this is you this morning. Maybe for you, you've, you've walked away from uh, God, you've walked away from uh, Jesus, from church or a community of faith, and you feel like, man, you're too far gone, <laughs> that there's no place that would accept you with open arms, um, God is just cosmically in the clouds wagging his finger at you. Oh, there's nothing farther from the truth. Don't let your past outshadow God's beautiful future for you. Don't let your past outshine or overshadow your, the beautiful future that God has for you. God invites the broken to his table to offer forgiveness and countless second chances. 
One other place I want to take us, another thought I want to give us about the table. It's the last week of Jesus' life. Him and his disciples are entering into Jerusalem. It's Passover week, which in the Jewish religion was a huge holiday, remembering God's faithfulness to the Jews uh, through Egypt. And people from all over the known world, all Jewish people, would travel into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And part of the way that Jewish people would celebrate Passover is that they would have animal sacrifices and offer them to God as a way of saying, we remember your faithfulness, God. Uh, we want to thank you. And so part of their system and the religion that they were is that they would offer animal sacrifices to thank God. And we, there are people traveling you know, tons of miles all uh, descending onto Jerusalem every Passover. And Jesus and his crew, they, they walk into the outer gates of the temple and they look around and they just see money changers everywhere. <laughs> they see people that were um, actually um, selling sacrifices to um, Jewish people and they were charging exorbitant prices because people traveled from a long way so you don't want to travel with a goat 60 miles I mean that sounds smelly and messy and complicated so they would travel themselves and they would buy a sacrifice there in the temple's outer gates and but what Jesus saw was not just the exchange of money he saw extortion <laughs> And Jesus saw exclusion because poor people couldn't afford to buy these sacrifices in the outer gates because the prices were outrageous and they were to the roof. And so, again, we see Jesus, not so Mr. Nice Guy, in the outer gates of the temple. Now, remember, he's just coming into Jerusalem, and he's making a name for himself as a troublemaker at this point because this is what we see happen here. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. Another translation says they, he didn't just drive them out. He took a whip, and he was, like, whipping them out. Like, you know, if you have preschoolers, elementary kids, and you're like, you have that moment where you just got to get them out the door. This is, like, what Jesus was doing here, right? He's getting them out the door, and he's whipping them out, and he's driving them all out. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Jesus made a huge scene. There were tables everywhere. Jesus is overturning these tables, <laughs> He's making a huge mess, coins going everywhere, probably uh, feathers going everywhere from uh, the birds that were flying everywhere. And Jesus makes a huge scene. And he says this, he quotes back scripture to him to tell them why they're so wrong. He said, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now, this is something I learned this last week. Um, it's not that there was any kind of exchange of uh, goods happening in the temple that was a problem. There were actually rules and laws written in the Old Testament about the way that you should buy sacrifices and the way that you should exchange money in the temple. It wasn't that there was money being exchanged in the temple. It was that there was extortion going on, that people were being excluded because of the prices. And the poor people were just, they were giving their all just to do their religious duty. And that upset Jesus because it excluded people. And that's why Jesus, when he looked at the table of exclusion, he flipped it on its head. He overturned the table. You know, Jesus was upset here because people were being excluded because they didn't have very much money. In other places in the New Testament, Jesus gets upset, and Jesus shows us a different way of exclusion um, if you're a male or a female. You know, it's no big surprise that 
men have traditionally had all the power in all of our systems, whether that be government or whether that be in any kind of religious institution. And Jesus did something so subversive to overturn the table of exclusion when it came to men and women. Uh, One day he was teaching and Mary Magdalene was there with him. And Mary Magdalene, uh, instead of cleaning up around the house, she sat at Jesus' feet. And that phrase, sitting at Jesus' feet, that was the idea, it was... the ancient people, they would pick up on it so quick because it was the idea of being a disciple of. And Jesus said, no, she's right where she needs to be as an equal disciple to all the men. She didn't have to just be doing the busy cleaning work around. She was a disciple learning and following her rabbi, Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful idea? The other times we see in the New Testament, Jesus overturning the table of exclusion of women because we see that women were actually the financiers. They were the one bankrolling Jesus' ministry. At the resurrection account, we see that the first evangelists, the first ones telling people that Jesus was not dead, he was alive, were women. And then tucked away in the New Testament, we see later that these letters that are our New Testament, like the book of Romans, uh, Junia, who was a young apostle, a woman apostle in the early church, she was charged with carrying this letter to other churches and then reading and teaching it in people's gatherings. Jesus does not stand for exclusion at all. He overturns the table of exclusion. I think the same thing is true of racism, which we don't talk about that at all in our culture today, Right? But Jesus, in in a world that was so, so racist, where there were walls built up everywhere about what race should be in charge and what race should sit down, shut up, be quiet, and just take it, Jesus spoke into it. Jesus tells a story, uh, in which sometimes we call it the story of the Good Samaritan. And Samaritans and Jews, they were um, so racist towards each other, hating each other. But Jesus makes the Samaritan the good guy at the end of the story. He makes the Samaritan the hero which upset a ton of Jewish people because there's no way a Samaritan can be a good guy. In other places, we see Jesus talk to a Roman centurion who wasn't a Jew, who wasn't a follower of the scriptures and all the rules and the regulations. And Jesus says, this man has the greatest faith in all of Israel. But Jesus, don't you know he's like the wrong color skin? And he didn't care. Because Jesus is always overturning the tables of exclusion. He's always doing that. And so I want us to understand this, that Jesus invites everyone to his table. Everyone. Hear me. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what you look like. If you're male or female, Jesus invites you to his table. And let's not listen to the voices of our culture or systems that are broken and oppressive and listen to those cues. But let's take our cue from Jesus, who invites everyone to his table. Uh, just, just to lean into this just a little bit more, I found this really, really fascinating as well. I want to put up this uh, famous painting by Leonardo da Vinci. We're going to break down the uh, plot of the da Vinci Code. There's Tom Hanks in the side. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, anyway, this is a famous, famous painting of Jesus' last meal that he had with his 12 closest friends, his crew, his 12 disciples. And so I was just asking myself this question, who did Jesus actually have around his table? Who were on his inner circle? Who were his crew? What were they like? What were they like? And so I started diving in and doing some study about like um, historically and what the church teaches about who these guys were. And it's fascinating how different these guys were. You have Peter, James, and John, 
who were fishermen, who were low on the socioeconomic scale of the ancient world. They were simple fishermen who probably could not even read at all. They weren't high on any kind of uh, ladder of success, but they're there. And then you also have one of the disciples named Bartholomew, who uh, the church teaches throughout church history that he had royal blood. He was extremely wealthy, had access to all the greatest education. He had access to everything. But he's sitting at the same table with these unlearned, pretty poor fishermen who did hard manual labor their whole life. Also at this table, you have a guy named Andrew. Now, we don't know a ton about Andrew. He only pops up a couple times in the gospel. But every time that Andrew shows up in the story, he's telling people enthusiastically about Jesus. I mean, he's just like, he's that guy that you meet and like the second sentence out of his mouth is, hey, you should come to church with me. Or, hey, do you know God? And sometimes you're like, chill out a little bit. But this is Andrew. This is mostly the only thing we know about Andrew. But at the same table with Andrew, who was an enthusiastic uh, sharer of Jesus, we see Thomas and Philip. Thomas, we don't know too much about Thomas. People just call him Doubting Thomas, right? He's a guy who, he had a little bit of skepticism, a little bit of cynicism in his heart, and he felt like he had to see Jesus resurrected to trust that he was resurrected. And then the only thing we really know about Philip is in the book of Acts later, Philip's skeptical that the church, this movement that Jesus started, could continue after Jesus was resurrected. So you have two skeptical, cynical, a little doubting guys at the same table with somebody who's first sentence out of his mouth, do you know Jesus? (laughs) Telling people about Jesus. Then, you know, just to go a little bit into this realm, you had Judas and Jude that were at the table as well. Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, and Jude. And we don't know too much about them outside of the truth that they were political zealots. They were following Jesus because they wanted Jesus to overthrow Rome, and they thought Jesus was the one who was going to put the Jewish people on top of the scale again. He was going to put them on top of the world, and they were following Jesus in a way to maybe use Jesus to overthrow Rome. And at the same table that Judas and Jude were, there was this guy that we've already talked about this morning called Matthew who was a tax collector that cozied up to the Roman Empire and made his living working for and with the bad guys. (laughs) Isn't that unbelievable, you guys, that the people at Jesus' table were so different from each other, and they were so different from Jesus. That's who was around Jesus' table. That's the model that he left for us. So let me please uh, turn the tables. See what I did there? On you guys, I want to ask you a couple questions. And you're not going to like me for these questions. You know, I'm, I might not see any of you guys again after this, but it's okay. I love you anyway. But I want to ask you a couple questions. <laughs> Here's the first one. Who's around your table? Who do you make room for around your table? Who are the people that you invite to your home and you sit six feet away from with masks on? <laughs> and who are the people... That when it's just you and you want to chill and be with people, you invite around your table. Who's around your table? Are there people that have socioeconomics just like you? Are they people that just have kids in the exact same season of life that you're in? Are they all Christians? Because you want to make sure you agree about that around the table? (laughs) which I think we can see pretty clearly Jesus didn't follow that rule. But are they people that see faith and the divine the same way that you do? Are they all the same race? Are they all white people? Are they all people that just look like you? 
here. I'm going to go there just a little bit. Are they people that vote just like you? People that see the way that power should be organized politically, either vote red or vote blue, whatever you do. People like that. More often than not, it's just natural human behavior that birds of a feather, what do they do? They flock together. That's natural. But hear me, my friends, and I love you when I say this. Birds of a feather flock together is natural, but it is not Christian. It is not the way of Jesus. Jesus invites us to a better way. <laughs> and when I was in college, uh, first time in my life, I you know, lived away for an extended period of time, and I'm living at a dorm uh, at college, and uh, I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't go to school knowing anybody, and uh, the, the dorm I lived in, it was kind of like our floor just became my, like, soror uh, not sorority, <laughs> fraternity. <laughs> we did everything together. We ate meals together. All our doors were kind of open all the time, so people would pop in and play video games and talk and uh, do homework and watch movies. We would just all do it together. And it was one of the scariest situations at first because uh, I, here I am. Uh, I went to a school where everybody looked like me. A lot of the socioeconomics were all the same. I was in a church where basically everybody had to believe all the same way or you weren't involved. And I remember being exposed to people that were so different from me. And I was scared to death. People that came from different church backgrounds, people that didn't really come from a church background, people that came from lots of different socioeconomics, people who voted differently, people who thought the Bible said things, interpreted them differently, people of different sexual orientations, people of different races. And at first, I mean, I just was like, this is, uh, and I went to a Christian, like, college, right? You know, so I'm thinking, like, I thought it would be a little bit more of all the same than this. And I was scared out of my mind, if I can be real with you at first, but it became one of the greatest gifts of my life. And seeing the way that God painted this beautiful thing called his creation with all different brushstrokes and all different perspectives and ideas and interpretations, I mean, it was such a beautiful experience. And hear me, it didn't mean that I had to line up with everything they believed or everything they were taught or the way that they lived their life. It didn't mean I had to line up and we had to go down a checklist, no. But it meant that I found beauty in each and every one of them, and they enriched my life as well. And I don't get this right all the time at all, but I just want to encourage you that who we have around our table, the more, diverse, more diversity we have, I mean, God gives us grace, and there's beauty in it. So don't miss this. Here's another question I want to ask you. What tables of exclusion is Jesus inviting you to turn over in your own life? What tables of exclusion, of, of that idea that people need to look just like me, vote just like me, live just like me, and that's who I hang out with. I think Jesus is inviting you to overturn those tables. <laughs> Turn them over. Which ones do you need to do that with? Is it with that neighbor who drives a different kind of car, an older car or a newer car? Maybe it's that neighbor that gets on your nerves because they always mow their yard before you do and they make you look bad. Or maybe it's the person at work who has the Trump sticker up or has the Biden sticker up in their cubicle or on their car, and you're like, I don't even want to, no, I don't even want to. What tables of exclusion are you, have you just been okay with that Jesus wants you to flip over? He's inviting you to flip over and say, no, I'm not okay with this. Birds of a feather flock together. It's human. It's not Christ-like. Where do you need to do that? Who's around your table? What tables of exclusion is Jesus inviting you to turn over?
And I want to give you one other action step, uh, specifically something through our church that we're doing uh, starting today, actually, over these next couple weeks. I want to encourage you, if you haven't yet, to join a table group. See, at Bridgeway, uh, this idea, this symbol of the table is so important to us that you might have heard of small groups or connection groups or life groups. We're calling our groups tables because we want that question of who's around your table to always be in the front of our minds because we think it was so important to Jesus. And so uh, we have, I think, 13 or 14 different tables that are starting, starting today through the next week. Uh, we have men's groups, women's groups, couples groups, and couples groups are some married couples and then people that are just dating as well. And we want to encourage you to get connected, to hang out with people, to do a little bit of a, a study together, but also uh, get connected so that you uh, don't live a life of exclusion just to yourself and your family or the way that you've always seen things. And here's a guarantee that I have for you of our table groups. I do not guarantee that these people are going to be your best friends. I do not guarantee that these people are going to stand up with you at your wedding or they're going to stand up at your funeral. But I do guarantee this, that you will come around a table with people that have some similarities to you. They'll have some profound differences to you. And you'll uncover that you have other similarities with them you didn't even know about. And you couldn't imagine having similarities with them because they're different than you. I, I guarantee that. So I just want to encourage everybody. We've got a lot of people signed up. We've got other people who are still trying to get signed up uh, to do that. There are three ways you can do that. You can go to bridgewaycocomo.com backslash tables. Uh, you can meet Allison out in our lobby uh, right after the service if you're here physically. Or you can text the number 765-375-1883. Uh, text the word table. And we would love to connect with you. But this is so important to us, guys. This is so foundational to us as a church that we invite everybody to be into it. My, my friends, hear me on this. Jesus invites us to go beyond our people to find the other and invite them to become our people. Let me say that again. Jesus invites us to go beyond our people to find other people that are the other and invite them to become our people. And we do all this, not because it's the right thing to do, it's socially cool or anything like this. No, we do all this because this is what Jesus did for me, this is what Jesus did for you. People that had nothing in common with Jesus, they liked hanging out with Jesus, and Jesus liked hanging out with them too. And when Jesus was cosmically above us and so different from us, Jesus left the splendor of heaven to come after us on a search and rescue mission, to sit at a table with us, to have fellowship with us, to become our friends. That's what he did for me. So Jesus followers, follow Jesus. And that is the invitation. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you so much for your example, for this challenge, for this unnatural yet beautiful way to live our lives, sitting around a table with the other, whatever that might look like. Father, we pray that Bridgeway, our little small corner of your kingdom, would be known as people that don't build walls, but we build bridges to people. We don't want uh, higher fences. We want shorter fences and longer tables. Let us be those people, not in a way of virtue, virtue signaling, not in a way of this is the cool thing to do, but in a way of this is how we follow you in this moment. God, I pray that we'd have the courage to do that. We love you and we thank you. Everybody agreed and said, amen. All right. We